This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. We proudly welcome artist Samantha Sherry as our sponsor on the How to Love Lit podcast. Sam is a world-class artist specializing in animal portraits. We invite you to check out her work at samanthasherry.com. Tell her Christian Gary sent you. Again, samanthasherry.com. Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. And today we're starting our discussion of one of the most beloved, if not the most beloved, gothic novel in the world. Of course, we were always going to analyze this book, but we moved up the timetable because we've had such a large number of requests for it. In fact, I have to admit, for us, this has been the most requested book for us to discuss. The second most requested, if you're wondering, is The Great Gatsby, which we're doing during our American Literature Series, which starts this fall. So, if you have a request, never hesitate to connect with us. We're always willing to take requests. Now, on to one of the world's most celebrated female teenager writers. Christy, do you have any idea why this book is so popular? (laughs) That's a complicated question because there are kind of a lot of reasons, some obvious, some more speculative, and we'll get into all of those as we go through the book because it's just a lot going on in this book. But one basic reason in my mind is that people like to be scared, fake scared, not Mm. pandemic scared. Um, Not for real scared. (laughs) No. So for all the philosophy, the criticism, the psychology, the deep penetrating themes, which they have all those, uh, as we think through those things, as we see those things in the book, we can also enjoy being scared, but not really scared, if that's something that you like. And perhaps on that most basic level, it is one of the classics that people can read, not just for ideas, but they can actually enjoy it uh, at the same time. And people love, people go crazy over horror movies. At least they do around here. Uh, We see this, especially during uh, Halloween time. And in our country, Halloween is a phenomenon, which I know it doesn't happen everywhere in the world. And I have to make a disclaimer. And I really 
should make this disclaimer. I don't like being scared. <laughs> I know that's unpopular, and Halloween is my least favorite holiday, and I know people love it, but I just don't like being scared at all. Stranger Things was a was tough for me to watch. I, it <laughs> oh, no. was. And Scooby-Doo is just about as scary as I'm willing to go, because I actually think Scooby-Doo is scary. I tried to watch Nightmare on Elm Street when I was a kid, and I just didn't make it. I just like went, put my head under the covers. I was at a party. And I was like, I can't do this. Uh, my daughters, by the way, have inherited this for me, or at least they were raised this way. I don't know if they can blame me for it or not, but I have a funny story. One time, their father and I, we went to a movie, and we left him with his babysitter who thought it would be fun to make him watch Chucky. They were four and six at, at the time, and to this day... I think they still have like visceral reactions when they see Chucky dolls or a Chucky poster. And I think we had to cover Lizzie's eyes every time we saw a Chucky. And there are like a lot of Chucky posters. You wouldn't think that. But I've noticed it. I've really noticed it uh, around her uh, because it would freak her out, even though it's kind of funny now. But this ties into Frankenstein and the genius of Mary Shelley for this reason. And I've thought about this. Why were the girls particularly scared and disturbed by Chucky? Because they were little and they played with baby dolls. Uh, And even though I've never seen the movie, I've seen the poster. And it appears to me that a baby doll becomes a killer. And the idea that that could actually happen is the horror of it. And it was the horror of it in the mind of my girls. So Shelley is able to kind of sink us into that kind of horror in our own selves in her own way and we're going to show how she's able to do that next week when we talk about science and what was so horrifying about that so on that top layer of understanding the book i think it's most interesting to think of it this way you can first and most i don't know enjoyably think of this book as shelly's gift to letting you be scared She knows what you're afraid of, and she can make it kind of a safe space for you to be scared of and laugh about later on. Of course, being fun doesn't get you legendary, so that doesn't completely explain the book. Mary Shelley attained legendary status even in her own day, and not very many writers do. Usually, like, they become famous, you know, 100 years after (laughs) they're dead. Uh, And the reasons for her legendary status, I think, are much deeper uh, and maybe less obvious. And we do want to kind of explore every bit of that. But before we get into all of that, I think it's just interesting and worth mentioning how popular this book, the character Frankenstein or the legend of Frankenstein really is what he's become, uh, has taken a life on its own. And in that sense, I want to think of Frankenstein as not something that Mary Shelley created herself. She certainly didn't create the monster we think of. Uh, She didn't create a character in the same way that Joe Ruby and Ken Spears created Scooby-Doo. She gave birth to something, but it grew up and it left the home, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, And this mythology has far outgrown anything Shelley conceived of and in some sense is still evolving even today and I like to think that she would have liked that mythology about this book and I'll tell you why in a later episode but Gary tell us how big is this Mary Shelley Frankenstein cult well before I do I want to point out you just said Frankenstein took on a life of its own was that a pun 
<laughs> no. Okay. I mean, it was a little accidental. <laughs> I right. was trying to decide if I want to reveal. I guess I'll go ahead and reveal you know, that Frankenstein in the book isn't the monster, right. but we think of it as the monster, and in most of the movies it is. And so I was kind of having this disturbing moment of what should I make of it and I I just gave oh. it its own life. <laughs> well, we will elaborate upon that uh, in future episodes because oh, that's yeah. a very interesting point about this book and the one that has to be brought out if you're truly going to understand it. Uh, but let me say this about Mary Shelley. I mean, she did write a book that today that we would say went viral and it took off in ways that she could not have imagined even if she tried. Um, it was actually turned into a play during her lifetime, and it was very popular. In fact, she went to see it with her father, and she turned to her father and remarked about how she was famous now, almost <laughs> like, now, how did that happen? As of today, that I could find on Wikipedia, there are more than 62 movie versions of her book. And I want to say this about the movie versions. I've never seen a book in all my life that is more misrepresented in the movie versions <laughs> than this book. People are fantastically off course when they when they do these movies. I don't okay? think they care. I mean, no, that's not the point of it. <laughs> but you're right. Yes, they're all over the place. And there are some that are just classic and accepted as art. Uh, the mo most famous being Boris Karloff's uh, movie Frankenstein that came out in 1931. And, of course, its sequel, The Bride of Frankenstein, which came out in 1935. And many critics have said that that movie is the best horror sequel of all time. And there's just no shortage of horror movie sequels. <laughs> and anyway... Uh, the Curse of Frankenstein from 1957 is highly acclaimed, and Jane Seymour's Frankenstein, The True Story, is also really well regarded, as well as my favorite, Mel Brooks' Young Frankenstein. Have you seen that? I've I never have. seen that. It's an awesome movie. You should see it. <laughs> oh, uh, no. And then there are the rest of them. Uh, you wouldn't be afraid of that version. It wouldn't scare you. You would laugh. All right. So uh, there was Frankenstein General Hospital. <laughs> And that's considered by Leonard Maltin, the film critic, to be the absolute worst of them all. But worst of all is a very competitive category. <laughs> I mean, there was I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, Frankenstein Unbounded, one of my other favorites, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Meet Frankenstein. <laughs> I might could do that. <laughs> but the one that wins the most outrageous, ridiculous award is the movie Frankenhooker. <laughs> What's that about? This is an actual real movie. Uh, it's where the, the plot of that movie is that a man accidentally kills his girlfriend with a lawnmower. Then he tries to put her back together again using body parts from dead prostitutes. That can't be politically correct yes, under no, any circumstances. I can't believe they made that movie, but it's out there. Uh, and that's just the movies. If you look at plays and songs and parodies that use the character as a part of a larger work, the number jumps in the hundreds and thousands. I mean, uh, even authors like Stephen King and Dean Koontz, who are known as spectacular horror fiction writers in their own right, have used this character in their works. Uh, it can be said with unequivocal authority that Frankenstein, Shelley's creation, or however you want to define it, roams the world and has roamed the world <laughs> continuously since its original There's creation. There's your pun. Yeah, we've got to work that in. So, Christy, let's see what happened. All right. Well, and I want to say maybe more than any other book that I've ever analyzed, to be honest, uh, the story of the author is 
truly fundamental and appreciating, understanding, and really enjoying the various levels and layers of this book. And I want to say, and I'm going to get into what makes this a timeless book for me and a book that I can read over and over again. And and I really cannot read all books over and over. Nor should again. you. <laughs> but um, uh, the deeper you read it or plunge it, the more layers that you can find. It can be beautiful and fun and interesting. And what is remarkable, I mean, this is truly remarkable, is that Mary Shelley was 18 years old. How did that happen? I wasn't even thinking about <laughs> You know, yeah. what were you doing with your life? At I don't age want to 18? talk about that. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking about Taco Bell and how I'm going to pass an exam and, and things of that nature. But when we think about what her actual life looks like, you know, it, it gives some insight into how that could happen. What happened to this girl that was able to create the world's scariest idea up until that point? But when you see, you know, how her life unfolded and how truly brilliant she really was, it makes it possible to believe that an 18-year-old girl was truly capable of creating not just a work of art, but an analytical piece of, you know, philosophy. She's asking questions, real questions. and Which is what all the great writers do right and but she's smart enough i think i don't even know if she's smart enough maybe she was intuitive enough that this is not a moralizing book she does not have the answers and she's not trying to give you life lessons you know like greeks were doing that you see that in sophocles they're trying to tell you how to live your life don't be proud or whatever nathaniel hawthorne's telling you don't keep secrets it'll hurt you uh, but she doesn't have any answers to any of these things that are plaguing her existence. And really, that's kind of what almost got this book tanked. It was rejected. She took it to Percy Shelley, her husband's publisher, and thumbs down on that. Then they were friends with this guy named Lord Byron, who will tell you who he is later. Oh, so much to unwind there. Oh, my there. gosh. They said no. And some of the critics uh, were kind of mean about it. Uh, but anyway, she found a guy that would be willing to publish it. And it wasn't a, a, a huge publication to begin with. It came out to, some would say, mixed reviews, which is code for bad reviews. <laughs> <laughs> but they were saying things like, it's vulgar. What's the point of this book? It has no lesson of conduct. There's no morality here. It doesn't instruct. And and Shelley would have said, okay. That's the point. <laughs> yeah. It's not supposed to. Instead, you know, she's asking if you thought about it and if they had taken the time to think about it in some amazing ways, she's asking you to sort out some of the things that she had experienced in her own life. And I'll be honest, at 18, she was justified in asking a lot of questions about how the world works and what the world meant. This girl knew more about suffering by this age than God help us. I hope most of us don't experience in our in entire lives. By this age, she had been blamed for the death of her mother. Uh, we don't know how outwardly, but we understand that she inwardly blamed herself for that. She'd been rejected by her father. She'd been abandoned and sent away. She'd been tormented by cruel caretakers. Her half-sister committed suicide. She'd been you know, I want to say, I believe she's kind of been taken in 
uh, duped by an older man, a lover, and she'd been betrayed by this man. She'd lost a child. She'll lose many children uh, to death. She's going to suffer postpartum depression. And then when she talks about it, she's talked down to about it in some of the most cruel language I've ever read. And that's just the beginning. Mary Shelley knew what pain felt like in so many different ways coming from different places and what she's willing to do for us in the way that girls at that age innocently do is she vulnerably and opens up and uses these emotions and invites us to meet her there in these places And so that makes it sad, especially when you realize this is where she's coming from. This is what she's writing about. It's not just scary. It's sad. And the Greeks would say that this is where we as the reader can find catharsis. We're reading it and experiencing with her and maybe, you know, allowing ourselves to have some release from these burdens with her in this experience. So understanding that this is what we can look forward to when we read the book. Let's go back all the way to 1797 and the birth of Mary Godwin to see what I mean when I say that her this is what her life was like uh, before we read what she tells us her life is like in story form. And I want to add, because I do think this is my view and it's my argument, that the story of Frankenstein is many things. It's definitely a treatise on science. It's sci-fi. There's no question about that. It's definitely a treatise on on religion. Uh, It's definitely a feminist criticism. There's no question about that. There's a philosophical argument about the nature of man. There's a psychological treatise on mental illness, specifically narcissism and depression. But first and foremost, what I read And what I enjoy reading the most about this is the autobiographical reflection on the nature of suffering and what it really feels like. It's not a biography. Don't think she's trying to just tell her life story because she's not. Obviously, it's sci-fi. It couldn't happen. But in many ways, and I want to point these out, this truly is her story. Well, her actual life story starts before her birth if you can believe that, because both of her parents were extremely influential, uh, not just for her, but on the world stage at large. And although she never knew her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft or Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin, her married name, very much influenced Mary's view of the world and merits some attention and was really the more famous parent. So in a sense, for her day, she's one of those kids whose parents are celebrities I think a lot of us read in school excerpts from her famous work, A Vindication for the Rights of Women. I read part of that. All right, which is really the West's first feminist tract, so it's historically very important. It was Wollstonecraft's contention, which today doesn't seem all that radical, but at the time it was totally new, that women were made inferior because of a lack of education, not because of biology. She ultimately argues for a reorganization of all of human society in some sense, elevating the role of women uh, to a position of quality, something we'll see Mary illustrate in Frankenstein. Her mother was truly unconventional and radical in her morality, too. She fought in the French Revolution. She met and fell in love with an American, a married man with whom she had a child, Fanny, 
but who also deserted his pregnant mistress in the middle of Paris during the Reign of Terror. There's a story that needs to be told. She tries to commit suicide by jumping in the Seine River, but fortunately for the world, she survives. She has baby Fanny, comes back to England, and marries William Godwin, who adopts Fanny. She gets pregnant with Mary shortly after that, but after Mary's birth, she catches a fever. She dies 10 days later, leaving her husband with two little girls. Which brings us to William Godwin, her father, another famous and radical man of his day, who obviously had the stronger influence on her simply because he raised her or he was there in her life. I do want to point out, and I'll point this out as we go through the book, that things like being blamed for her mother's death is something that we'll see happen to a character in one of the store in the story of Frankenstein. And that's what I mean by it's biographical. So there are certain things that happened in her experience. And then she puts them in different places happening to different people at different times in the book. And that's, and she kind of blends it in, uh, in different ways. Which is why whenever we start a new book, episode one is always the life of the author, because as we have said many, many times, Authors don't write out of a vacuum. They write out of life experience. And then when they write out of that life experience, it creates something that relates to other people. I think that's really true for first novels. We see that a lot. You know, oftentimes people use their life for their first one and then they can get a little bit more creative. I don't know. I wish I could be a great novelist. That would be an amazing thing. <laughs> there you go. But you but you do see it uh, a lot. And I just think knowing about the people who create art is in and of itself its own interest, really. But anyway, I don't want to interrupt. You can go ahead. William Godwin was a very progressive man at the time. He was an outspoken atheist and intellectual, and he filled his home full of other intellectuals, and almost all of them were dissenters of the Anglican Church for one reason or another, and they would congregate and discuss their ideas in his living room. And it's really remarkable that Mary Shelley was going to meet writers like Coleridge and Wordsworth, and she's going to meet John Turner, the artist, and Clementi, the musician. She even is going to meet Aaron Burr, the American presidential candidate who shot and killed Alexander Hamilton. But ultimately, there was Percy Shelley, (laughs) who absolutely was in love with Mary's father before he met and then became romantically involved with Mary these are the people that would sit in her living room, even as a little girl, and discuss deep things in front of her. Uh, and after she came back from Scotland, she was encouraged to participate in this herself. Well, for all of his enlightenment, uh, Mr. Godwin, her father, needed someone to help raise these little girls when uh, her mother died. And that was a huge problem that was never really well resolved. Uh, when they were really, really little, He got a nanny, obviously, apparently a wonderful woman by the name of Louisa. Problem was, and this clearly became a problem more than once, she fell in love with one of Godwin's crazy radical dissenter friends. And so she ends up hooking up with one of these guys, and this didn't go well. Godwin did not like that this, this relationship was going on and he fired her and forbid her to see the girls even though they loved her and really was the only mother they had known for the three years that she lived with them and so now that she's gone uh, and he wanted I guess somebody a little bit more conservative if that's the right word to raise or traditional to raise his daughters 
he finds a wife, and he's going to find another woman uh, by the name of Mary Jane Claremont, who I'm just going to say right now, she's a hideous human being, a termagant, to use the old-fashioned term. We have a a more appropriate term that we say, but I don't don't (laughs) think we should put it on the podcast. This is a horrible person. Uh, In fact, Mary Shelley later says that when people talked about her, it made her literally shudder. And she's, to me, she's like the Cinderella stepmother. Basically, she gets all mad because Mary is beautiful. Jane, her daughter, is ugly. Beyond being really stunningly beautiful, Mary is exceptionally brilliant by anyone's standards. And Jane is truly stupid by anyone's standards, even her mother's. There's a letter that she said Jane had not such first-rate abilities as Mary's. That's Jane's mother talking about her ugly, stupid kid. So in order to kind of make things right, she did what all evil stepmothers do. She wouldn't allow Mary to have an education, and she you know, tried to deprive her to get her to be stupider and stupider, to use a stupider word. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and try to equal things out. So much bitterness in your in your recitation right there. <laughs> I know. It was so mean. I hate to see people be cruel to children. Well, none of that worked. For one thing, William believed in self-education exactly like the three narrators in her book, Victor, the monster, and Walton. More self-biography. <laughs> yep. So in spite of all of Mary Jane's, that was the stepmother's name, attempt to keep Mary down, Mary read tons of philosophy and absolutely loved gothic novels, which were super popular and commercial at the time, kind of the Netflix of their day, if you will. And I know this is getting a little ahead in the story. When she described what she was doing with Frankenstein, she says she was writing a philosophical romance. So basically, a serious book, but with all the gothic stuff that she had loved so much. Something really interesting and perhaps not as outlandish when you think about her upbringing. She was consuming philosophy on a regular basis from her earliest years. She taught herself foreign languages and just sat around in a company of these older intellectuals and listened to them discuss stuff. And uh, they were also really a charming bunch of people while her stepmother just stewed with resentment. And really, I think she charmed them. They loved having this smart, little, beautiful girl. They're always describing her as beautiful in their mix and being able to go head to head with a lot of their radical ideas, so to speak. Anyway, not getting off the intellectual thing. Okay, so she's this intellectual powerhouse. She's also a little girl. And so she does and reacts to what her stepmother doing in a way that you would expect a little girl. She rebels a lot, and she outright calls Jane stupid to her face. And Jane, I want to say, doesn't come across as the most stable person mentally throughout the whole time we talk about her. I mean, you'll see this later on, even after she's older. But she starts changing her name. She actually will change it four times. But at this point, she makes everyone call her Clara because that's a prettier name than Jane. And Uh, And Clara was the first part of her last name, so she became like Clara Claremont instead of Jane. But anyway, by the age of 13, living with Clara and the stepmom, Mary's life was so stressful that she became 
sick and she became, she would have these psychosomatic health problems and boils, like skin boils, literally directly related to her anxiety started coming up all over her body to the point that something had to be done. So for everyone's health, they make the connection that her health was failing because of these relationships. William sends Mary away indefinitely to Scotland, a setting in Frankenstein. Oh, my goodness. I know. To live with a family she didn't know, the Baxters. Now, the Baxters are really, really nice people, and they had a really, really happy family. But Mary was not a part of it, and she knew she wasn't a part of it. She was an outsider. And so when she talks about her experiences in in Scotland, we get the impression that she's like this person watching in on what a happy family looks like, but she never got to be a part of that dynamic herself. Again, something we're going to see in the book. And this isolation makes her really sad and it makes her miss her father. And so in spite of the stepmother and the stepsister and everything that she knew that was awaiting her back home, she really wanted to come home. And so she did when she was 16 years old. And that's when things heat up. Mm, Yes. And events will unfold very quickly now. Uh, She comes back to her father's center of radical philosophical discourse And she meets a man who absolutely adores her father, but who apparently is charming and he's funny and brilliant and good looking. He's a rising literary celebrity, too. And his name is Percy Shelley. I just really wish I could have met. He's a schmuck, but I would like to know how this man pulls off being this charming. Well, apparently he could. Percy sees the beautiful Mary Shelley, and he's smitten, and she falls in love with him. But, of course, so does Clara, or what will eventually be Claire, spelled C-L-A-I-R-E, Claire. It it just gets too confusing to go back and forth with all her names. Uh, Anyway, and we think the other sister, Fanny, is also smitten with Percy, too. Anyway, and this is just horrible. Mary, who apparently is the chosen one of Percy, and Percy used Claire's stupidity to spend secret time together. Since Claire was in love with Percy, too, Mary got Claire to go out to meet Percy secretly. And I'm not sure we know how all this went down, but what we do know is that both girls are 16. Both are in love with Percy. Percy apparently chooses Mary. Within months of Mary's return, she's having a physical relationship with Percy. And by July 8th, they have eloped together to Paris. But Claire comes along for the honeymoon. It is just so weird. It is bizarre. And they're not actually married. I want to point out, Percy's married to somebody else and has two children. Indeed. And again, and to his credit, I guess, William Godwin, for all of his radical philosophies about dissenting from the church and the way things should be in England, when even he goes crazy about this. This is too much even for him. This elopement is not well received. Like I said... Percy is married to another woman, and he has two kids, and he's going to completely abandon his own family. Now, this is something William completely identifies with because he picked up a kid that somebody else had abandoned once, Fanny, and she was still living with them. And now his underage daughter, let me see, this would have been illegal today, but his underage daughter and his stepdaughter are literally running away, traveling on a European vacation with an older, rich, celebrity man 
who is convincing them that free love and this radical new lifestyle is the life they should be living. This is what progressive life looks like. This is what cool kids do. This is what people who aren't bound by the restraints of that conservative culture that you're leaving. But really, I see it as he's exploiting them, if you ask me. And I'll just say it now. It may have come across. I think Percy Shelley is one of the worst humans I have ever known anything about. I consider him a true horror. And I'm glad Mary turned him into a monster (laughs) (laughs) Uh, because that's what he is. Just so you know, Victor was Percy's uh, pen name when he wrote. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's a lot of Percy Shelley in the character of Victor uh, Frankenstein. We're going to see that later. So let me just get it out there because I just cannot hide my biases. I am not crazy, though, about William Godwin either. I think he's a schmuck. Mm. But Percy wins the schmuck award. (laughs) Well, okay. So I'm glad you told us how you really feel because we would have been, like, you know, confused. But I guess we had it worked out. Uh, Obviously, love triangles don't work out well, and this one doesn't either. Uh, On a positive side... The beautiful landscape passages in the novel come from their honeymoon trip through Switzerland, Germany, Holland, and France, and it includes the glaciers. But things are twisted. Mary gets pregnant. Claire tries to find her own poet, as she says it, and she goes after the most celebrated poet in the world, Lord Byron. Talks him into allowing her to be his mistress on the understanding that he doesn't really like her. (laughs) I know. That's what I mean, that she's messed up. Right, and then invites Mary, Percy, and Lord Byron to Lake Geneva for an adventure, and they all agree to go. So Mary, Percy, and Claire rent one house on the lake. Lord Byron and a buddy of his, Dr. John William Polidori, rent a bigger house next door, and this is where Frankenstein is born. Well, and don't forget, in the midst of this, Mary is going to give a give birth to this baby girl who she names Clara. Is that not strange? It is. Uh, and then two weeks later, the baby dies. And this is just so sad. And I want to mention from this point on, Mary is going to have a reoccurrent dream and she records it in a journal. And she says, I dreamed that my little baby came to life again and that it had only been cold and that we rubbed it before the fire and it lived But I awake and I find no baby. I think about the little thing all day and not in good spirits. And of course, this is written on March 19, 1815. And this is right before, because at some point, the whole worth a happy couple of three doesn't work out. And since she has the kid, she's going to kick Claire out completely. And this is really where Claire goes, tracks down Lord Byron, all that stuff you just talked about. Another seemingly arbitrary but relevant detail has to do with a climate phenomenon that occurred at exactly the same time. The year was 1816, and that year they are at the lake, and that's also known as the year without a summer. They also call it the poverty year, and 1,800 people froze to death. There's a strange climate abnormality that causes global temperatures to decrease and go down. But the big problem is that it killed food supplies all over the world. 
I don't know the figures of actual deaths, but it was massive and it was universal. And so you mean they don't just freeze to death? People are starved starve to death okay. also. But how it immediately affected Mary Shelley is that they had set up this beautiful vacation on Lake Geneva. And basically, while they were there, it stormed and rained and was gloomy the entire time. So they got out on the lake a little, but mostly they were held hostage indoors. Oh, and by the way, this is when Byron and Shelley meet for the first time. And this duo would be friends for the rest of their lives. And it's today regarded as one of the most significant in all of British literary history, which I find amazing because there's a lot of amazing things about British literature. But these two getting together is epical. Well, I want to point out the biographical part, thunder, lightning, yep. all that comes from the book. So, And it's here that we want to answer a question from one of our listeners. Our listener friend, Rachel, wrote to us and asked this question. Is it true Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein for a contest with her friends on who could write the best horror story? Well, Rachel... We are going to answer your question as we develop the story. But so far, you understand they're all together at this point. Yes. And I'm going to say one nice thing about Percy Shelley, which I'm embarrassed to do. But I I will say for all of his schmuckness, uh, he, Byron, Mary, and Doc, the doctor, Polinary, I think his name, they sat around and would discuss philosophy, science, religion, art for days uh, and they do this as equals. Mary is, she can go toe to toe with any of these men that today we consider geniuses. And it's interesting that when Mary talks about these events, she says, us four. But if you do the math, <laughs> Claire is who do you think she's leaving out? <laughs> Claire is the fifth wheel. But maybe, you know, Claire didn't talk much. I will say this too. And I, um, this point, Claire is pregnant with Byron's kid but let's throw that complication in yes there. uh but maybe it's just mary being mean anyway uh this all leads to that fateful night at the Vili, villa joe dotty whatever uh byron's <laughs> whatever. place is called i can't say it properly and they're gonna they are gonna decide to compete but it's not a contest in a formal sense it's just like we're here friends we have nothing to do we're bored their own little quarantine so to speak and so they're gonna say and it's over a course of a few days who can come up with something that's scarier than what somebody else can come up with and they keep trying to find the answers and there's a lot you know all of them have an account of what went on there and there's a lot of conflicting stories about how all this played out who influenced who who said what what made people think of this or that and the other but the bottom line is Mary is sitting around in a house. It's thundering and lightning all the time. Uh, and they're talking about science. They're talking about life, philosophy, the meaning of all these things. And then she's going to have a what they call a waking dream. And I don't know what that is exactly, except you're not asleep, but you're not awake. You're kind of in that little twilight kind space. Of a yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you're trying to go to sleep. But basically, She's ruminating in her in her bed, thinking about all the science and philosophy that they've been talking about. And some, there's actually some current events that we're going to read about that played into this as well. And, you know, she's just had this horrible problem with her baby. And, and then it says, she says she has a vision. She says this, I don't know what to call it uh, because she's lying in bed. But oh, she says this. I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing that he had put together. 
I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion. On the morrow, I announced that I had thought of a story. So she says that she has this vision. She's not asleep, but she has this vision. It's almost like the story came to her instead of she creating the story. But she says that she was so terrified by this waking dream experience that she knew she was getting ready to win this. Like she knew she had a horrible story. And this, she tells the story, and it's, this is kind of the seed, the little contest is the seed, but it's ultimately going to be what today we know to be Frankenstein. Well, and interestingly enough, part of the discourse that went on with these people this time period is they were reading German ghost stories to each other. So this whole intellectual milieu was being stirred up. Uh, So anyway, shall we open up the book and see what all of that produced? Well, let's start with the book. And I don't know if we can actually get to open it up so much today because there's just a lot going on. I want to start with the cover. The name of this book is Frankenstein, and the subtitle is The Modern Prometheus. Now, just that, you think, okay. (laughs) You can't even get past the title. (laughs) But there's a lot going on. Uh, And first of all, FYI, just to bust the bubble of Herman Munster, this guy that she's talking to doesn't have sticks coming out of his neck and is not green. So there's the disclosure for real. Victor Frankenstein is the name of a doctor who created a being made out of dead cadavers, not just humans either, dead animals. The book is named after the doctor. Now, I want to make this a point of emphasis now. It's not the creature. Why does that matter? Because that's the focus. The focus is Frankenstein, the person. And so the thematic ideas are about him, not about the monster that he makes. So, Before we get into the subtitle, where did she get the word Frankenstein? Does she have an Uncle Frank? Uh, No. (laughs) Well, we do have to infer a little, but I don't think it's a hard stretch that she got the word Frankenstein from a castle in southern Hesse, Germany. There's actually a Frankenstein castle. You can go there. You can have dinner. You can even participate in a horror dinner night. So if you're in the area, it sounds fun. And from the website, it's beautiful although we've never been yet. Anyway, the word Frank is a German tribe. The word Stein means stone, so it's a very basic name. But what connected it to creepiness is that in the 1600s, there was a guy born there named Johann Dippel. He was an alchemist who had tried to make an elixir for eternal life, but he also exhumed dead bodies. We know for a fact that Mary, Percy, and Claire, when they went on their European vacation traveled in this part of Germany, so the likelihood of them having visited the castle or the village or hearing the story of Dippel is extremely unlikely. I think she was thinking of a good name and she recalled the castle, but I'm not sure I've seen anything about that that would tell us that for sure. But Yeah, I don't think there is anything, but I don't know where else you would have got it. Anyway, let's move on to subtitle, because this is far more thematically driven. A modern Prometheus. Now, this is a direct reference to Aeschylus, the Greek writer who beat Sophocles the year they presented Oedipus. So everything connects <laughs> in the world. Anyway, Aeschylus wrote a play, uh, even though people sometimes question whether he did, but we'll say that he did. 
called Prometheus Bound. Now, Prometheus is an interesting Greek god. He's a titan, the father of the Olympus gods. But anyway, he is the one that creates man out of clay. So that's good, right? But he gets into trouble with the other gods because he steals fire from the gods and he gives it to man and thus sparks the beginning of civilization. So the play is about power. It isn't uh, because what happens is uh, what Prometheus does isn't well received by the other gods at all. And, and he's, he's given a great punishment. <laughs> oh, it's mm. horrible. He's condemned to eternity, not to die, but to have his liver eaten out every day. And then it grows back and then it gets uh, eaten birds. out <laughs> yeah, again the next day. So this is just gross and it's painful. But the liver for the Greeks is the center of emotions, kind of like the heart is the center of emotions in most Western cultures. So there's a metaphorical sense to it, to the idea that you're being emotionally wrecked every single day for all of eternity. And this is an idea that Mary Shelley feels. So there's a lot to think about of what she says. When she says a modern Prometheus there's a lot of layers there of what she's trying to convey. Well, let's just add another layer. Um, and I'm not sure that it makes any difference at all, but Percy Shelley was at that very same time writing his own play called Prometheus Unbound. So they probably had a lot of Prometheus discussions. Oh, I'm absolutely sure they did, and I guarantee it. And Byron had a piece where he uses Prometheus too. So, and I will say they did have a lot of intellectual compatibility and they did discuss a lot of things and this is how he influenced he edited this book really for her anyway enough of him getting back to the title just uh that is a lot of a lot of meaning aeschylus writes this play about power and knowledge and the dangers inherited in them and so it's a very good and clever and goal-directed title But once you get past the title, you're not done with all the philosophical, religious, mythological, theological frameworks that she's asking you to dive into. Because, again, you open the cover, you got past the title. There's a quotation of Milton, John Milton, on the cover from his great epic, Paradise Lost. It's the quote from what Adam says to himself when he realizes he has fallen and is going to be expelled from the Garden of Eden. Adam says this, Did I request thee, maker, from my clay to mold me? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? Uh, Let me interrupt you for a moment right here. For all of us non-literature people, what is Paradise Lost? Oh, sure. Paradise Lost is, like I said, an epic poem by this guy named John Milton. It's over 10,000 lines in blank verse, which means it has a, a meter, but it doesn't necessarily rhyme. It's been very influential for a lot of reasons. But basically, it's the biblical story of the fall of man, the temptation of Adam and Eve, and the fall of Satan. Uh, it is said really... Milton wrote that to discuss... It's an argument on behalf of God... Uh, the way that kind of trying to explain the way that God relates to man and justify uh, man's relationship with God from a very theological perspective. 
Mary Shelley is extremely familiar with the book, and she references it not just in the beginning, but also midway through. So we'll revisit it again for sure. She's going to make it, but in a sense, let me say this, she's setting up this biblical parallel. Just like Adam, the monster did not ask to be created, but he finds himself, we're going to see the monster is going to be finding himself also thrown out of the Garden of Eden. So I don't think she's supporting Milton's claim that to defend the ways of God. I read it as she's challenging the ways of God. And that's a very bold thing for a teenage girl to do. So what this preface does in my mind, it takes the book from being just another horror fiction gothic book meant to scare you. And right here at the very beginning, it forces an educated reader to take Shelley seriously. She's saying, I'm pretty sure I can scare the bejesus out of you, but I can do more than that. I'm talking deeper than just fright. I have thoughts about the existence of man, the role of men and women in the world, women's uniqueness. I have arguments to make. They're going to have something to do with God about being good, what is good and evil, about where our responsibilities to each other lie. In many ways, this book is a mythic retelling of the extreme old biblical text in secular terms, but in other ways, it's a challenge to it. So all of this is wrapped up in the same time that she's going to try to freak you out. So usually by the end of the first episode, I'd like to get you through the first chapter or maybe even the first page, but I think we're going to need to stop at the end of the subtitle. The way she's framed this book is so interesting and thematically deep. I don't even think we have time to get into the framework of the opening of it. So if you feel bold, come back next week. Join us on this journey down to Lake Geneva into the minds of this teenage girl. I will also say, if you've never read the book before, uh, don't feel bad if you don't want to pick it up just yet. Wait for one more episode and let us set it up for you and explain the first uh, five chapters. And we will see if you can like it a little bit more. I know it's a hard book to read in some ways, uh, but I think you may enjoy it more after uh, a little bit more setup. Well, there is so much more to uncover in Frankenstein, and it's all interesting, and we just, we don't want you to miss any of it. So thanks for being with us today. Hey, tell your friends you have found a great podcast in us. Tell them about the How to Love It podcast. Send them to our Facebook page, to our Instagram page, to howtolovelitpodcast.com, where they can catch up on all the great things that we're doing. We'll see you next time. Peace out. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. 
And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.